It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. Abdu Murray, his beautiful and costly journey from Islam to Jesus. Apologist Abdu Murray holds a law degree from the University of Michigan, and he's the co-founder and president of Embrace the Truth, a ministry offering the truth of the gospel to Muslims. But Abdu once was a follower of Islam. All right, so Abdu, you grew up in, in Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah, in the, in the southeast part of Michigan in the metro Detroit area. I understand you were a hooper back in the day. I was. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was. I, um, I'm very tall for a Middle Eastern guy. I'm six foot eight. I uh, loved basketball, which is not a surprise to anybody. Um, and I ended up being pretty competitive, pretty serious about it. I um, played on some pretty competitive AAU teams. And then after that, I uh, got a full ride to University of Buffalo. It was, uh, I think, Buffalo's first year Division One, And so I played Division One basketball, but then I transferred hoping to try to get onto the, the the Michigan basketball team, University of Michigan, but that didn't work out. I blew on my knee over the summer and things were done. Things were over at that point. But yeah, I, I, I love it. Loved, loved it then. I still love it now. Yeah. All right. So we have that in common. We have basketball in common, but what we uh, don't have in common is how we grew up because you grew up in a Muslim family. At some point you immigrated to the United States. Talk about growing up in a Muslim family in the, was it Dearborn? Mm-hmm. So we, I was uh, born in Detroit, actually, and we spent a lot, of, a lot of our years, my earliest years in Detroit. Then we moved out to the suburbs because schools were better and all these kind of things. But we spent a lot of time in the Dearborn area, lots of family, lots of people um, in and around Dearborn, Detroit, Metro Detroit area. So, um, yeah, spent a lot of time there. Arab families, like most immigrant families, are very, very insular. You know, there's there's communities that form uh, around the families. And so you are sort of immersed in that ethnicity quite a bit. I was able to integrate pretty well and pretty easily into sort of non-Arab society around me in uh, the suburbs of Detroit, where I ended up uh, doing most of my growing up. Uh, in fact, the uh, the area I grew up in into my early, you know, tween and then teen years and then my teenage years uh, was um, largely undiverse. It was not a very diverse area. So we were sort of like um, the dollop of olive oil in the pot of rice, as I often put it. Um, you know, we were sort of exotic there were some Indian families and a few Muslim families in, in the city as it got more and more developed. Not a lot, but there were some. I was able to be sort of uh, exotic, which means that I could actually share my Muslim faith with those around me. And I had that advantage, you know, of being exotic. So it was uh, fun. I got a lot of exposure to, you know, Western culture, but I also got to give a lot of Middle Eastern culture. You became very strong in Islam, a very convinced, committed follower of Islam. And so what did Islam teach you? Well, so I thought Islam was the cat's whiskers, man. People should believe it. And I didn't have this idea that, you know, truth is relative. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. I wouldn't have any of that stuff Um, because Islam doesn't teach that. Islam teaches that there is an objective truth, that Islam is that truth and that people should believe it. What it essentially teaches is that there is one God, that God called Allah, which is the, the Arabic word for the God, uh, was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, Jesus, uh, Noah, Moses, Adam, Eve, and Muhammad. And that it was just a continuation. It was the, the, the perfection of the Abrahamic faiths. 
and that um, it was the issues around the cross and the incarnation of God and Christ and the Trinity that were corruptions of Scripture, corruptions of God's teaching, and that people should come back to true monotheism, which is submission to God's will in Islam. That's what Islam actually means. It means submission to God's will. Uh, so I was taught you submit to God's will and you perform God's law and you do the things he says to do. And if your good works outweigh your bad works and God has mercy on you, you will attain heaven. And if your bad works outweigh your good works, then you will not go to heaven. You'll go somewhere far worse and far more vile. So I wanted people who weren't Muslims to realize the truth of Islam, come back to true monotheism and attain God's paradise. So I was taught that and uh, I spread that. Did you feel like, I'm going to go to paradise? I'm sure. Uh, no, I never felt sure of it. And a Muslim is never told to feel sure of it. In fact, a lot of Muslims, if you read the Hadith literature, Hadith is basically a lot of sayings of Muhammad that are that, that have been preserved, or you know, it's dubious as to whether or not they're, they're actually authentic or not. But Muhammad himself, the prophet of Islam, and a lot of the early followers of Islam would would say repeatedly that they had no assurance of salvation. There's no way to know if your good works outweigh your bad works. Plus, God can do whatever he wants. So should he choose, even though your scales are in favor of the good, should he choose to say under his divine fiat that you don't go to heaven, you don't go to heaven. So there's never any assurance really of salvation, except in one way. Not all Muslims say this, by the way, but some Muslims would say that to, to give your life in service of Islam, like jihad, and that doesn't mean necessarily war, actual violence. You can have jihad against drug use in your neighborhood or prostitution or whatever, where you're trying to change policy. And But if you give up your life and time and treasure to the propagation of Islam and you die in that cause, then you're assured salvation. And that's the only way. But not every Muslim actually believes that either. So assurance of salvation is very, very tenuous at best, if, if non-existent. So, Abdu, as a teenager, you were a committed follower of Islam, mm -hmm. and you communicated your faith to Christians. You evangelized yeah. Christians, and mm -hmm. you stumped a lot of Christians. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit in the area I grew up in. You know, back in the 80s and the 90s, um, <clears throat> it was still fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you didn't mean it. Now it no longer is. People don't say I'm a Christian if they kind of don't mean it. Back then, people said that. Uh, and I was an equal opportunity faith knocker out or over. It wasn't just Christians that I did it with, but they were just more numerous than Jews, atheists, Buddhists, and Hindus, uh, although there were some. So I would actually talk to Christians at some point in a very conversational way. I wasn't like uh, standing on the corner, thumping my Quran at them or anything like that. It was conversational. And I'd often open up with this question, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Now, it was interesting is that the answers were almost non-answers. They were almost questions. So I'd say, why are you a Christian? And they'd say, well, I don't know. I go to the Presbyterian church or the you know Lutheran church or Catholic church or the whatever church on Christmas and Easter. So I guess I'm a Presbyterian or a, I guess I'm a Lutheran. I'm like, well, I don't know. Is that a question or an answer? I'm not even sure you know why. And I would follow up with this and I'd say, so you're telling me tradition. Tradition is the reason you believe this. You're trusting the destiny of your eternal soul to a worldview that somebody else thought through, but you have not. Why would you do that? And by the way, I thought it through for you, and here's 15 reasons why you're wrong. And that's when I would, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and that's when I would put them on their heels. I would put them on the heels, and I would attack. 
the authenticity of the Bible, I'd say that Bible's been changed and corrupted. The idea of the Trinity, I would really harp on that because Christians couldn't even define it, let alone defend it. And then I would say, of course, you know, God is so vast and so great, and yet you claim he gets trapped in a body that sweats, needs to eat, falls asleep, and then dies at the hands of the very sinners he created. And all of this, mind you, was a result of the fact that as a Muslim, the fundamental teaching of Islam is God's incomparable greatness. Allahu Akbar. You hear this phrase all the time, especially in the news media. Uh, but a Muslim says this not as a terrorist chant, but as a, as a statement of a prayer and a praise that God is incomparably great. Allahu Akbar literally means God is greater. So for me, God is the incomparably greatest possible being. Every Muslim who's committed to Islam believes God is the greatest possible being. And I thought the Trinity, the incarnation, and especially the cross all insulted God's greatness. And so it was my job to knock that faith out of Christians to get them to see the God who was truly great. But a little foreshadowing, a funny thing happened on the way to the mosque, as they say, and I discovered that the very things I thought denigrated God's greatness were the very things that demonstrated God's greatness. Mm. Wow. Did you ever win a Christian to Islam? Yeah, so I did. Um, now, whether or not that person was a dyed-in-the-wool actual Christian or not, or someone who was culturally identifying as such, things like there were people who were religious or people who believed in God who would fast Ramadan with me, who would uh, read the Quran and consider it to be God's word, who had started to pray Salat and five daily prayers or whatever it was. There was various forms of people who I ran into who would start to actually change their mind about Islam, whether they became fully committed followers of Islam or or not. There was those who, who would, and then there's those who would have, you know, varying levels of belief. But I, I, I would say that I succeeded often in getting people at least to consider that Islam was worthy of their respect, if not their reverence. And some actually did consider the Quran and Muhammad to be a prophet and the Quran to be God's word spoken through that prophet and that did Islamic rituals as, as I did. Abdi, you had this strong armor of Islam around you. You were firm. You were strong. You were probably winning cultural Christians to Islam. Mm -hmm. And yet, you started to question. There was something that caused a chink in your armor. What yeah. was that? Yeah. So uh, there was two guys who were going when I was in, uh, in my undergraduate days at University of Michigan. There were two guys who were going door to door. Uh, at the apartment complexes, they were two Christian guys. I remember them, Dave and Pete. Dave and Pete came to our apartment. They, you know, got a lot of doors slammed in their face because no one wanted to in an arbor get proselytized to or evangelized to in their own apartment. But I was like, man, you guys deliver? This is awesome. So yeah, Dave and Pete came into the house, uh, into the apartment. I made them very uncomfortable and I wanted to knock the faith out of those guys. So I began to read the Bible to find a contradiction. But what was fascinating was, I didn't find any real contradictions that would knock their faith out. However, I did come across some words that really got me to think, maybe this thing isn't what I thought it was in the first place. Maybe there's more to this than I originally thought. This was when you were at U of M? Yeah, at U of M, yeah. And yeah. were they with a specific campus ministry? No, they were actually just going around door to door as part of their service to their church, to the local church. Um, so I grew to love these guys, by the way. 
you could tell something. They cared about my eternal destiny. They weren't just doing something because we're supposed to do it. We come back, we report that we got this guy to start thinking about this. They weren't doing that. They actually really cared about my destiny. And I cared about their destiny as well. So there was a great relationship. No matter how stubborn I was, no matter how stubborn I thought they might have been, just a real good relationship. And that's when I realized there was that 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 verse of scripture. Remember, I was reading the Bible to find contradictions in the Bible, not to believe anything it said. Because I thought that the Bible had once been God's word, but became corrupted over time, and the Quran came to fix that. Well, I came across Luke chapter three, verse seven and following. And John the Baptist says to the people who are coming to him, he says, "Who told you to flee from the wrath to come?" Meaning God's judgment. Then he says something remarkable. He says, do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. And suddenly it occurred to me, what John the Baptist is saying is tradition doesn't save you. Well, I had been asking Christians, why are you a Christian? And they'd say tradition. And I'd say not good enough. And I was right. And John the Baptist was agreeing with me. But the reason why this suddenly struck me was because John the Baptist was actually asking me. I believe the Holy Spirit, using God's preserved word through his servant, John the Baptist, talking to 2,000 years later, a skeptical Muslim guy and saying, why are you a Muslim? Remember, I was asking Christians, why are you Christians? And they'd say tradition, and I'd say not good enough. And none of them ever had the chance to really ask me, why are you a Muslim? John the Baptist did, and the Holy Spirit convicted me. I didn't become a Christian that day, but what he convicted me of was, you are a Muslim because you're supposed to be, because of tradition. And that started the journey. That started me thinking, I want to find out what is true, not just because I'm supposed to believe it, but because it's actually true. I thought Islam would win the day. I fully was committed to that, but I wanted to be as objective as possible. So you realized that you were following Islam because of tradition. Yeah, I, I had come up with my reasons, you know, the the perfect preservation of the Quran and various miracles that, you know, uh, had to obtain. And I had my apologetics, so to speak, for Islam. But the fundamental reason I clung to those was because I was supposed to. OK, so you went on this nine year journey to investigate not just Christianity, but all the world religions. Yeah. Man. So. Yeah, yeah a lot of reading. A lot of reading. Um, it's funny because once I had heard, I had read those words from John the Baptist, and I decided I was going to go into a, a objective view on what worldview is actually true. Um, I began to look at the central tenets of many, many worldviews. And you don't have to look at every single writing ever done by every single worldview. You have to take them seriously enough to dive into them. But after a while, certain worldviews start to emerge as better options than others. So I looked at Hinduism and Buddhism and and uh, and atheism and all these things, finding compelling reasons to believe there's only one God and that that God is the creator of all the universe. The design around us speaks volumes to that. He shouts volumes to it. I began to see that the the history behind the Christian faith was starting to become compelling to me. But honestly, with my newfound sort of objectivity, I read verses in the Quran that spoke of the Bible very, very highly. The Quran references the Bible as if it was God's word, God's trustworthy word in the seventh century when Islam was being propagated by Muhammad and his efforts. So it occurred to me, if the Bible was once God's word, 
but became corrupted. When did this happen? Because the Quran seems to suggest that it hadn't happened by the time the 7th century rolled around. And all the evidence we see, the historical evidence we see, shows that the Bible we have now was what the apostles wrote then in terms of the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're getting more and more evidence all the time verifying what the Bible says, but also giving us a solid tradition about the transmission of the Bible down through the ages. So I began to see that this Bible is worth my attention. This is a really important point because Muslims will say the Bible is corrupted, but the Quran, when it was written, said the Bible was pure. And Mm -hmm. the Bible that was during the time of Muhammad is the same Bible we have today. So that is a uh, it's a misnomer. Yeah, it's, it, and so that's a historical development behind that. It's a little complicated, but essentially Muslims had assumed that the Bible was going to match up with the Quran because the Quran speaks so highly of it, and Muhammad did it sometimes as well. It wasn't until the Bible was translated into Arabic that Muslims started to realize, centuries later, by the way, that Muslims started to realize, oh my goodness, this doesn't match up, and it can't be our book that's that's wrong. It's got to be their book that's wrong, and so the idea of corruption started to, to happen. But also there's an important thing here. Remember, I said Muslims believe that God is truly great, incomparably great. If God is the greatest possible being, then that means that God would be both all-powerful and he'd be trustworthy. Now follow this. If God is all-powerful, then he could prevent his revelation from becoming corrupted. So if the Bible becomes corrupted, and that is his revelation, then he's not all-powerful. And that's not open to a Muslim. If God is all-powerful, then he would be able to stop the corruption. Then he'd also want to stop the corruption from happening. So if God could have prevented the Bible from becoming corrupted, but allowed it to become corrupted, well, then he's not trustworthy. And if he's not trustworthy, he's not great either. So you see that if God is truly to be great, he would be able to preserve the Bible and he would be willing to preserve the Bible. And if he's all powerful and trustworthy, he would have. History shows that he did actually preserve his word. So theologically speaking, if you believe God is great, you can't possibly believe as a Muslim that the Bible was changed. You can't possibly believe that unless you believe in a God who's either impotent or untrustworthy. Okay, so you became convinced that because of the greatness of God, whose power would never allow the word to be corrupted, mm-hmm. that the Bible has to be true. Yeah. And so... Among other reasons. Among other reasons, but yeah. And so once you became convinced that it's true, just walk us through that, because I know you didn't just dive into following Jesus once you realized, yeah. oh, the Bible has to be true. Yeah, that's that, that's right. And I often put it put it this way. It took me nine years, not because the answers were hard to find. It took me nine years because the answers are hard to embrace. And I want to say this. I don't care what worldview you come from, whether it's Islam or it's Judaism or it's uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, or even atheism. There's always some level of personal price to pay for changing your worldview. You know, an opinion is something you hold with an open hand, and it can be changed pretty easily because you hold it with an open hand. You're like, I'm willing to have my opinion changed. Give me enough good reasons to change it, and I'll change it. But a conviction is something you hold with a closed fist, not a clenched, angry fist, but a closed fist because you hold it dear to your heart. And if you ever try to pry open someone's fist when they don't want it to be opened, it hurts you and them because convictions are very hard to let go of because their convictions become defining 
And for me, Islam was defining. It was the kind of thing that became an identity. I liked being a Muslim. I didn't want to change that. I had so much bound up in that that I didn't want to lose all that. And so I spent seven years. I found enough answers to become a Christian in two years. Hmm. I spent the next seven years wrestling with what do I do with this? So there came a point in time when I had intellectually assented to the truths of Scripture. I had assented, in a sense, agreed that the Bible was God's word, that it accurately gives me the history of the, of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus of Nazareth was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross and claimed that he would rise again from the dead to vindicate his claims to divinity and to show us that he actually did pay our price. And that history showed that not only did he say he was going to rise, but that he actually rose. Independent from the Bible, there's biblical history, there's extra biblical history that shows that Jesus rose from the dead. So you see, I assented to everything that was necessary to have a doctrinaire or doctrinally sound faith. It wasn't enough because I realized there was a price to pay. And a big part of that was my identity. And I didn't want to do that. And so I'll I'll say this, if there's anybody listening who has been thinking about the credibility of the Christian faith, but has assented to it, but hasn't embraced it yet, I can tell you that it's worth it, regardless of the price. It wasn't until I realized that everything I was hoping was true in Islam, God's greatness, was actually demonstrated to be true through the Bible that I really saw, my goodness, this is worthy of my embrace. In fact, I'm not even worthy enough to embrace it myself, but thanks be to God, he is gracious and he gave me that truth and he reached me where I was. Take us to the moment when you leaped into Jesus. So I remember where I was when I read the words of scripture. You know, and I, I want to pause for a moment here. It was scripture that got me started on the path of thinking, maybe I want to look and see what's true. John the Baptist's words in scripture. And it was scripture that ended up, despite all of my theological and scientific and historical uh, searches, it was scripture that coalesced all of it together. My point here is this, is that there can be some really lofty arguments made in favor of the Christian faith. And there can be some incredible expositors of the Christian faith who have done a wonderful job either defending it or extolling it or whatever it is they've done. And none of them match up to the sheer eloquence and power of God's word. So may none of us ever speak with lofty arguments and a closed Bible. You can use those arguments, but that Bible is powerful. And so the moment when I I decided this was worth it, this this is what happened. I was uh, reading Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You know the phrase, of course, it's well-known scripture. It's the verse I sign all my books with. Mm-hmm. It's the verse I resort to when I think about things so so poignantly. For God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It suddenly occurred to me reading that. In Islam, God is great. Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being. Well, if God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic. Otherwise, he's not a great being. What is the greatest possible ethic? Well, the greatest ethic is love. And if he's the greatest possible being, he would express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. Otherwise, he'd be like a half-baked version of God, like like Hercules or something like that, or even Zeus. But no, he's the greatest possible being. So he would express the greatest ethic in the greatest way. And the greatest way to express love is self-sacrifice. 
All of us are capable of self-sacrifice. We love someone to the point where it benefits them and hurts us to do something. That's self-sacrifice. Well, if we, who are infinitely less than God, can express love in this beautiful, greatest possible way, ought not God, the creator of all, be able to do that, but even better than we do? So if self-sacrifice is the greatest way to express love, and every other system of belief, I don't care what it is, knows no God who does such a thing, and only one says, with historical backup, that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and he gave his only begotten son. So the father sacrifices as much as the son sacrifices at that cross, then that triune God is the greatest possible being because he expresses the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. But there's one more bit to it that I find so amazing is that we sacrifice for those who love us back. And as Paul says, maybe even for a stranger, but we don't sacrifice for those who hate us. We don't. But Romans chapter five, verse eight says that while we were yet sinners, Mm -hmm. those who hate God Mm -hmm. and love ourselves more, Christ died for us. The greatest possible ethic is self-sacrifice, and the greatest expression of even self-sacrifice is to change those who hate you into those who love you, and to sacrifice for those who hate you so that they can see how much your love for them overcomes even their hatred of you. And my goodness, I realized everything I was looking for, I finally found in the most unlikely place, the place that I resisted the most, is the place I needed to rest the most, and that was in the gospel. Did you experience the love of God being poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit? Oh, my goodness. I Well, so let me say this first, okay? When I said a prayer, confessing my sin and acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, as we're told in Scripture, and I prayed that prayer and I said, in Jesus' name, my first reaction was nausea. Yeah, because I... I realize I've gone somewhere I can't ever return from now. In Islam, the only unforgivable sin is to associate partners with God. You know, I said, oh my goodness, Jesus is God. Is there any turning back now? And then the elation and the peace and the, the revivification of my will and my hope, it all came to, to, to fruition because I suddenly you suddenly realize, despite all of that, And in light of the truth of all of that, that Jesus is who he said he was, I have eternal life. Like my, my name is written in a book and no one can erase it from that book. Mm. That sense of security, that sense of, I finally found the God I've been looking for that outweighs any fear, any trepidation, anything that might keep you back from that. That sense is not only worth it in that moment when I became a believer, but has been the sustaining force ever since any trouble I've experienced either related to my faith in Christ or because of my faith in Christ. He has always sustained himself as worth it, and I've never looked back. Thanks for letting Barry and Shauna walk the real-life journey with you. The content from the Barry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Barry and Shauna Mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.